<sighs> African problems. I was just going to say yeah. cross-border podcast. <laughs> <laughs> episode 19 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. On today's panel, we have Len Wines here. How's it? Kenneth Kalmer. Good evening, everybody. I'm Kevin McKelvin, and we are joined tonight by Kennedy from iHub in Kenya. Good evening. Kennedy, would you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Kennedy Kiruri. Uh, I run the consulting arm at the iHub. Uh, the iHub is an, uh, it's an open space based in Nairobi. Uh, you'd probably call it the next point for techies in Kenya and more so in Nairobi. So we basically have a team of freelancers that we work with uh, to deliver on different uh, software solutions for clients. Yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Well, that's that's fantastic. I think uh, I think everybody's very keen to to hear a little bit more about what iHub is and and what you can do um we we had a show out here a couple of years back called tech for africa and somebody introduced us to something called ushahidi i forget who exactly it was but i believe that they were part of starting up ihub but i mean you feel free to correct me if i'm wrong there kennedy oh, okay so maybe a bit of a background to how the ihub came into being uh around uh, 2008 2007 uh there are quite a number of people in nairobi talking online about uh, the tech space, what people are doing, how they can come together to do a bit more. And uh, actually, a few of them came up with the idea of setting a number of people to run events in our space. So think of developer meetups, uh, think of guys trying to launch a product, and even think of uh, now the bigger uh, the bigger meetups in the sense of maybe a fireside chat. We had Marisa Maya in our space. She got to talk to the techies in the Nairobi ecosystem about what they do and that kind of thing. So in the beginning, it was just an nexus point for different people. Yeah, and at this point, we continued with that, but uh, we also realized that uh, beyond the physical aspect of having connectivity and meeting people, there are quite a number of gaps in our tech ecosystem. Uh, the first one we saw was uh, research. So quite a number of staff startups were just doing things without data to back it up. So we set up a research facility that focuses on ICT research. Uh, we then did a consulting arm just to get more freelancers to work together and learn better jobs. And we also set up a user experience lab to teach the concept of human-centered design to, the, uh, to our ecosystem. So that's the stage at which we're in. Uh, that, that's that, that's hell of an interesting guy. I just want to touch on something there. You said uh, that there was a bunch of startups. You didn't have enough uh, data to what, like, go. People were going to market with badly formed ideas, or what? You know, what were the symptoms of not having enough data for the startup space there? Yes, yes. So, so it was mainly based on assumptions, uh, because, like, if you look at the research uh, institutes uh, that uh, operate here in Kenya, they do the typical research, so think of uh, opinion polls and that kind of thing. Right, right. No one was really focusing on now. For example, if one of the interesting uh, 
research papers we published was an a mobile usage at the economic at the base of the economic pyramid yeah, in yeah. Uganda and Tanzania. So as uh, as someone who wants to start something targeting that segment, if I get a hold of that research paper, I'm able to like uh, see the important things that I need to think about before I set out to develop a product. Yeah, no, sure. That stuff is super, super useful. Now, who's funding that kind of research? Because so you said you in the iHub you uh, set up a bunch of guys and they went off to do that research. Does that is that right? Okay, so, so most of the times the way it works, uh, we have two main models. Uh, some of the research that we do is grant based, uh, where we actually just get a grant to uh, do a research that we thought would be really useful, and right. uh, for some. We actually do consultancy services, and some of the clients release the report to the general public. Uh, for example, GSMA did uh, a study on the state of uh, entrepreneurship in Africa. So we basically went around uh, most of the countries that have, have an active tech ecosystem, talked to quite a number of startups about the challenges they face in terms of growing whatever they are trying to do, and we were able to publish that is something that anyone can access. But of course, for some companies, they would rather keep that to certain channel. Yeah, no, sure. And I mean, it's really great that uh, the guys are giving back. Uh, did, yes. did you guys Did you guys come to South Africa for that one? Yes, I think so. I think we work with uh, the guys at Josie Hub. Yeah, oh, cool, cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably need to check it. Uh, but uh, yeah, the report is online. Like It's, it's actually public information and have a glossary of everyone we talked to cool all right um it would be really great if we could get a link to that because then we can put it in the show notes but that's that's super interesting i've often thought that's uh, something we're kind of missing down here now uh, do you guys have a good kind of university ecosystem in in kenya uh i, I can say they try but they probably need to do a bit more <laughs> yeah uh, because one okay we we understand that as a university, you don't actually teach people like the, the actual skill. You teach the concept and that kind of thing. But I don't think the environment is there that challenges the students to actually go beyond the fundamentals and actually learn more about what they need to do. Uh, but the interesting thing is that we've been running quite a number of outreach programs where we get to visit these universities. Uh, talk to the students and uh, start changing the perception of the administration to actually set up uh, innovation hubs within the universities. And that's actually happening at this point in time. So it's very encouraging. That is, that's, that's super awesome. Um, okay. So kind of how many people are at iHub now? I mean, how big is iHub? Okay. It's, uh, uh, we have, uh, our staff members is, around 50 people fully employed 50, uh, 50 people just on the staff yeah that's on the staff so wow, uh, between, okay yeah between the community space that we run uh, our research initiative the consulting arm and the user experience lab uh, we have 50 people in that stack uh, the physical space is actually used by an average of 40 to 50 people every day uh and uh, we have an online community of around 16,000 people. So it's, it's, wow. it's quite a big community. 
16,000 yeah, people, that's Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, or the whole region, no, no, so, or just, just, just Kenya? No, our online community is open to anyone. So, right. Uh, and actually, quite a number of people come from the U.S., and now mostly Kenya. And it's mainly because uh, when you talk about uh, tech in, I would say, mostly East Africa, and I would also say Africa in a way, uh, I have always comes to mind. And right. for quite people, it's easier for them to follow up on what's going on by just knowing what I have is doing. Yeah, you you guys have some pretty high profile support, isn't like Nokia and Google, some of those guys in in there. Yes, yes, yes. At this point in time, we're actually working with. Uh, we we not we we don't have a current partnership with uh, Microsoft. Uh, let me just pull up like uh, the partners that you are working with now. Just give me a minute. Sure. Uh, but okay, we have GitHub as one of our partners. It was actually a way for us to get more coders to. I uh, use like modern techniques to building and code and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. We also have current partnerships with the likes of Intel. Uh, we also have a partnership with Oracle, Salesforce, uh, Zuku for our internet. That's a local company. Uh, we also have a partnership with our local bank called Chase Bank. Just uh, working with them more, a bit more in terms of connecting them with entrepreneurs and startups that play in the financial space and hopefully they can strike partnerships with them and just do a bit more with them uh we also have github and quite a number of other guys so the the concept is uh how can we work with people interested in the tech ecosystem in a way that it adds value to the guys who use our space and uh, create opportunities for both sides of the of the equation yeah, so in your partnership, say, with Intel, what kind of involvement do they have with IHUB? Okay, so for our partnership with Intel, we, we run a lot of competitions and workshops uh, to get uh, Android developers to uh, build better applications for the platform. So uh, because Oracle are doing a lot in that space, mainly because of uh, the chips that they're trying to get <coughs> manufacturers to run on, uh, they also wanted, uh, like, if you're an Android developer, if you build specifically for the Intel architecture, what more can you do to make your app run better? So uh, the the benefit was very clear in that sense, in the sense we are building capacity and getting people to do things in a more efficient and better way. Hmm. That's, that is just so super interesting. Well, I, I think you, you have to get us out there to Kenya, and uh, we think we have to come see this firsthand. What do you guys say? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you should. I mean, it's, it's quite easy for you guys to come here. Uh, yeah? Like, it's easy for you to get a visa to come to Kenya. That is awesome. Yeah, I can't say the same of me to come to South Africa. <laughs> really? Is it, is it more difficult for you guys to come this way? Yeah, it's, they actually make us jump through hoops. But, yeah, it's, it, it used to be easier a while ago. But at this point in time, yeah, you didn't, uh, even Idris Elba didn't get a visa. Yeah. So it's a bit difficult. Oh, that's very interesting. That is super yeah. interesting. Um, in terms of tech hotspots in Africa, I mean, we've got, uh, when it comes to, for example, Ruby conferences, we've got the one in Cape Town, but I know that there was one that was ha- planning for or planning to be running um, somewhere in Kenya. Might have been Nairobi. I'm not sure where. Um, well, it was Nairobi. It was yeah. in May, I think. Was it not Kennedy? Yeah, it was. 
So, uh, yeah, so, that, so that did happen. Okay. Uh, I heard that there was one being planned out, but when I last heard about it, it wasn't confirmed yet. Oh, okay. So uh, one of the other things that we're really trying to push uh, the community to do is the user groups. So think of something like our Nairobi JavaScript group. Uh, it, it's basically uh, guys who are really interested in JavaScript can get together and organize different things on their own and we'll give them support where we can. So it's similar for the Ruby user group. Uh, there's a Python user group. Uh, there's the GDG, the Google guys. So quite a number of things are happening in that space. And the beauty of setting it up that way is that uh, guys who are really excited and really want to get it going will take charge and get things moving as opposed to having like a central figure trying to organize everything. Yeah, so uh, even in the security space, uh, we've, there's a group running what they call, what they call Africa Hackon. So they have a yearly conference where they get to present different things that they are doing, uh, trends in the space, even run like actual, uh, simulate actual attacks and just get people in that place to be more excited. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know when the next Ruby conference is going to be. As I said, it's everything is kind of decentralized so that people can run things on their own. That's that's within iHub. You can just kind of step up and volunteer and run little mini conferences. Yes, you can, and we don't even limit it to the iHub itself. So, for example, uh, for the recent uh, GDG, the Google Developer yeah. uh, Group, uh, they actually ran it in one of the local universities, and uh, we just helped them like spread the message to the people that they are targeting. And also sent like quite a number of speakers from our space. So some of the uh, consultants that I work with, they are really, really good coders and they can share a lot with those people. So it's the concept of a community where it's not left to one person to do everything, uh, but pe different people put in effort different in different ways and they actually get up more than that way. Okay, that's fantastic. Now you mentioned the the HackerCon, is that right? Which is a security conference? Yeah, Africa HackerCon. Okay, that's great. Um, are there any other big kind of conferences that happen in Kenya? Developer related uh, conferences? Uh, okay, most of the conferences that are happening at this point in time, they are more uh, focused around specific languages. So they haven't really, really grown that much. Uh, hopefully with time, the user groups are still new. They are right. still in their footing. So they haven't really done much in that space. Uh, most of the conferences that happen, it's more around the entrepreneurship and the startups. Uh, so think of uh, something like the 1776 challenge. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. No, no, I'm not. No. What's oh, about? 1776 challenge. Yes, yes. So, so it's an American company. Uh, they run uh, challenge, challenges like uh, startups get to pitch and get the chance to actually go to Washington and uh, pitch to a different audience and hopefully get some money from business and that kind of thing. So uh, I have organized the Africa one. So it's actually going to be in the next, I think it's early January. Uh, one of the other startup pitches that we do is the Seed Stars competition. Uh, probably not familiar. I, I have heard of Seed Stars. It's, so these are essentially like places for sort of first round uh, 
um, funding, is that right, for startups? Yes, yes. So probably seed round and in some cases, uh, uh, but quite a few, you would actually have guys looking at Series A. Okay, that's fantastic. Yeah, so it's, it, it sounds like the startup community is is quite active in Kenya. Like, how many startups have kind of got funding and uh, so forth over there? Oh, okay. I unfortunately I don't have those stats. Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest challenges that we are facing is that we haven't got to that position where people talk about like uh, the stage in which they are. Right. So, yeah, you, you might know someone was doing uh, the seed round maybe like uh, a year ago. And then after that, it's a bit difficult to know what next they are doing. So for most cases, it's normally the seed round that you find out. And probably, right. is, eh? yeah, but quite a number of startups are still young. Uh, probably unlike uh, in South Africa, I think your space is a bit uh, more advanced compared to where we are. Um, South Africa is a bit crazy at the moment. It's it's a very much a case of who you know. If mm. if you know people, then you get the money. Um, there are a couple of small groups that are funding, but there's mm. not really that much money that I know of that's just freely available. Oh yeah, I think it's it's probably the same thing here. Yeah, uh, most of the money that people get in an easy way compared to like probably winning. Uh, a competition. So, for example, uh, just before the Global Entrepreneurship Forum, which uh, was held in Kenya, uh, the Case Foundation and a couple of other guys ran uh, a pitch contest where they gave away 100k to the 100k USD to the winner. So, I think that's probably where quite a number, quite uh, a number of startups get their initial money. Yeah, and then if they are able to like show good traction. And actually have like good connections. That's now when they get to raise the second, the, the the rest of the money. Right now, now are most of the startups are they focusing on the Kenyan market, or is there a big drive to kind of build European or American product? Uh, it's mostly the Kenyan market and the East African market in general. Uh, if you look at the way our ecosystem and the country generally set up where one we don't have like you might conquer the entire market but with the population dynamics compared to for example a country like nigeria you would still be pretty small so most of the startups uh, create solutions meant for the kenyan market uh, but they are able to scale it scale it out to the region so think of east africa that's kenya uganda uh, right. Tanzania, and then even move out to Rwanda and that, and then probably now pivot to the rest of the continent. What's the sort of target market that you're looking at there? How many um, sort of active tech users are there in, in East Africa? Uh, so, okay, so that's the interesting thing. Like uh, the way the way most startups set it up, it's not really for tech users. They are right. targeting the general population. So you'll probably find most applications are available on USSD, SMS, and on the web, and then platforms like uh, Android and iOS come in way later compared to the to the other two. Right, right. So things like Compesa and that sort of stuff is very popular just because of the the low yes. barrier to entry. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And 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 then sort of number of of web users, number of actual internet users in that space. Uh, in East I would Africa? probably have to look it up. Yeah. Uh, the last report was done, I think, a year ago by the Communications Authority of Kenya. 
Yeah, I would have to look that up. I don't have it off the uh, off the top of my head. Yeah, but is it, is it safe to say it's the majority of Kenyans at least? It's not like there's only ten million people. It's more like thirty-five to forty million people that at least have some kind of access to these services. Okay, so uh, our population is around forty to forty-two million, and based on the Safaricom's annual, uh, like the last report that they did, Safaricom uh, is one of the biggest telcos in Kenya. It's the biggest tel- telco in Kenya. They hold uh, our around 90% of the market, and they usually do uh, quarterly reports on the like market penetration, number of internet users, and that kind of thing. And the figure they released in their last quarterly report uh, was 14 million active internet users, and that's mostly on mobile phone. Yeah. Uh, but again, as I said, for most of the startups, it's it's usually uh, SMS, yes, it's been, then now move on to the web and that kind of thing. And uh, so the web and the Android space and the iOS space, it's mostly targeting the uh, cities, that's uh, Nairobi being the first place that, that people launch, that now into the major towns in the country. But uh, at this point, not many have actually covered most of the country. So it's still mainly in the big cities. Yeah, it's, it's very similar in South Africa. I think you guys are about double our internet users, um, but we're comparable in terms of uh, 3G and SMS. And that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I don't know if you know any uh, different, Kenneth, but I think we've only got about 7 million internet users in South Africa. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know mobile data is growing stupidly fast, but it's off a very, very low base. I do know we have more SIM cards than people in the country. Yeah, okay, although there's, SIM there's some, <laughs> some issues about that, aren't there? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, yeah, but uh, let's not pick at, at, like, grab at straws here. Uh, yeah. Kenny, I'm curious, like, Ushahidi is, like, in my mind, at least the biggest success story out of Kenya. Like, what other amazing things? Well, actually, maybe let's cut it in two. Like, where did Ushahidi come from? I know that quite a dark start but it's helped it to definitely change the world. And uh, maybe after that, like, what other kind of success, what else is there that you guys are proud of that we just maybe haven't heard of? Oh, okay, so uh, Ushahidi started mainly because of the 2007 post-election violence, uh, where, like, it was really, really difficult to get a true picture of what's happening in the country because uh, the the mainstream media stations were not reporting the way things were going. So uh, a lady called uh, Juliana and Ori, David Cobia and Eric came together and created a platform where people could actually send in information and then they were able to show it on the map. So in the beginning, the concept was just to have a crisis reporting tool. Uh, but based on the various iterations that they have done so far, it's now a crowdsourcing tool where you can you can use it to just get any information from the public and use the right processes to actually verify if that information is uh, true or false. Yeah, so it, it has, yeah, as you, as you mentioned, it has like a dark background, but it's really amazing how people have been able to use it. One of the interesting examples is uh, in Egypt, uh, someone came up with what they call the harass map. So basically women report incidences where they were harassed and because you have the 
the location aspect to it, you can quickly map with time like the hotspots and that kind of thing. Uh, another use case was uh, when there was a, an earthquake in Haiti. Uh, someone did a deployment that helped uh, uh, rescue workers know where to direct their attention to. Yeah, so it's 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 definitely one of the biggest things that has uh, hit the rest of the world coming from Kenya. Apart from Mpesa, of course, but Mpesa didn't really ship out, unlike Kushahidi. Yeah, I must say this thing. I've every time it's I've been like made aware of it again and again and again. It's just been used like in the most amazing and grueling circumstances where people just get it out there and start saving lives or corroborating or getting facts right. Uh, it's always been stunned, and it's been great to see how it evolved. I remember from the first elections. Just it was just a silly little map with a few custom map markets, but you could clearly see the clusters of where things were going south, and it just it's like it looks fantastic now. It looks mm. stunning. One of one of the interesting things I came across from like those disaster situations was this appeal to have the cell phones be able to spontaneously form networks without the towers, because what they were saying is during disasters, especially, mm. you know, the cell phone towers go down then almost all the emergency relief is unavailable for communications. They just can't get in contact with anybody. So they want to try and legislate, and I hope they get this right, mm. where cell phones can use just sort of some free band and, and to mesh together to form spontaneous networks, especially in emergency situations so that you can at least have some basic local communication still in place. Yeah, that, that would be brilliant. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, but of course, you know, there's huge opposition to that from the powers that be. Oh, yeah. They they might lose money because of that. Yeah. Yeah, As soon as someone's not able to control it, there's a lot of questions that will be asked. Also, I mean, the amount of revenue they're taking out of Mm. uh, sending, you know, 140 bytes across a network, it's a bit scary. Most expensive form of data in the world. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And then, <laughs> other than then Ushahidi, Kennedy, like any other nice like success, like what are you proud of? Oh, okay, uh, probably the, the the one I would also think about, uh, and it's closely tied to M-Pesa. I think quite a number of people in our space are still doing a lot in the financial segment, uh, mainly because of the the way M-Pesa has been a success in Kenya. So uh, there's a company called Copo Copo. So. Uh, for most merchants, uh, collecting money from uh, their buyers using M-Pesa, it's always been, it's easy to collect the money, but it's really, really difficult to do the reconciliation, so to know who paid you and what it was for. Uh, so a local company came up with the concept of just uh, building on top of M-Pesa, having an application uh, that now enables the merchants to collect that money and still be able to do the reconciliation. Uh, and it's really, really grown. It Like it just caught up and just blew up. Uh, it actually got, uh, in the beginning, M-Pesa was really struggling getting merchants to use M-Pesa to accept payments. Uh, but once Copacopo was able to do the front, uh, the front end and the back end reconciliation, it really took off. So I would definitely list as one of the things that we're really proud about in the Kenyan tech ecosystem. I must say I'm blown away at the the quality of of these websites. The Scopa Copa website's amazing. 
Ushady, the iHub website, uh, your oh. blog that we've checked out. Uh, it's, it's world class. If I stumbled onto this stuff and I did not know where Kenya is, I would have thought it was some weird state, the 51st state I hadn't heard of yet. <laughs> it really looks amazing. Thank you, thank you. Uh, and it, it's really interesting in the sense, I think one of the things that have, that has contributed to that, we actually have a lot of experts uh, in in the Kenyan tech ecosystem. So, uh, for example, uh, the one that I talked about, Kopo Kopo, the founder is actually American. So just the concept of having teams from different parts of the world with different experiences uh, usually leads to better results. And uh, then it becomes a challenge to other startups to actually match that level. So as opposed to the race to the bottom, we actually competing with the rest of the world in terms of how things look, how things work, and how we can actually make like be that competitive. So it's a case of a rising tide, like yes. lifts all ships. Exactly. Yeah. It's of course there are challenges, but yeah, it's uh, in the in the in the end that's what it is. And I can even give you another example. Uh, uh, in Africa, I think uh, user experience has taken a while to pick up. Uh, is, I don't think that's the case in South Africa. I think you get. No, no, uh, it's still the case. <laughs> it's still the case. That's surprising. Yeah, yeah. it's getting yeah. there. Some places it's great, but a lot of the places it's terrible. Oh, okay. Uh, in so I think one of the main reasons that we set up the user experience lab, it's not just more just training people locally. It's more about now getting startups to use that approach and also having effect of that spilling over to now the bigger and the mainstream companies. So think of something like a bank. Uh, they're usually the last, at least here in Kenya, to adopt anything. Yeah, like, as well. Lie on like what they've always had and they'll stick with that until it doesn't work anymore. Uh, but based on like the workshops that we ran, uh, the projects that we worked on and shared that information, we actually got banks coming to us to help them recruit US, UX experts to join their team so that they can actually develop products that work for the market. Wow, that's inspiring. That's yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> you, yeah, you, think, you need, you need think, to come to South Africa and help the banks here. Man. <laughs> I think some, some of the corporates around here have started waking up to that side as well. I mean, we had that code retreat on the Global Day of Code Retreats. I think the Standard Bank was sponsoring that. Yeah, oh. the Standard Bank are doing some good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, specifically the e-markets people. We were told to like really focus on them. They apparently the good guys. <laughs> oh yeah, I think for them they really need that because now they uh, they are using modern ways to get people to use their services as opposed to the traditional way of having to go to the banking mall. And yeah, uh, even, yeah. So in Kenya, like I think you know very well how something like Empresa has really put. Uh, banks on their toes so uh it's become a bigger bank than all the other banks and it's not a bank the irony of that is not lost so yeah. uh the banks are now forced to like be a bit more innovative in terms of how they can make it easy for their customers to access their money to pay bills and all that without ha actually having to use a credit card or a debit card so mobile money is actually big just apart from mpesa uh Banks are now making it easy for you to just use your phone on USSD, pay for bills, transfer money, and do all that. So it's a case of, as you said, the rising tide, which is actually putting up, like pushing up everyone. 
And speaking of that, that skill level and, and wanting to compete and get better, are you guys doing anything specifically to attract like expats to keep on coming in to help accelerate learning and, and craftsmanship and all this kind of stuff? Uh, I would not say we are actively doing that, but I think Kenya is still a lucrative destination for most people. Uh, one, it's a bit easier, like it's easy to actually come and work here. There are quite a number of startups started by uh, uh, non-residents who then tap into their networks to get like now people are a bit more experienced to come and work with them. And uh, in the at the end of the day, We've noticed that we don't really need to do much in that space. Our focus is more to do with now with the guys that we have, like the Kenyan tech ecosystem itself. Think of the coders, the designers, uh, the product managers and the likes. What kind of uh, training can we do and how can we get them to learn more uh, on actual projects? And doing any kind of that training outside of the major cities? Because, I mean, I can just imagine, like, if I have to look at South Africa, I mean, like, like a, what's it like, a quarter of the populations in cities and the rest of the people are dispersed all over the place. And, like, like do you guys try and help and reach out to, to give people out in the rural areas also access to kind of teaching opportunities and, and a chance to build something for their communities? Uh, so far, we haven't really done that. Apart from our outreach program, which is, uh, focused on universities, we haven't really taken an active role in that space. Uh, instead, the approach that we've taken is to try and get more hubs to be set up in different parts of the country. Uh, so recently, or not recently, it's actually quite a while, we helped uh, a town called Mombasa. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's one. It's a coastal city. It's really yes. big. Uh, so they have what they call Swahili hub there. Swahili box, sorry. And uh, it's, it's, it's a similar concept to what we do at the iHub. We also helped another one in Kisumu, it's called Lake Hub, to set up and get, like, get things going. So instead of trying to cover the entire country by ourselves, uh, our approach is to get uh, local communities to take ownership and start things out. We'll support them the, the best way we can. Like Think of something like uh, human center design is still a new concept. We'll send out guys from our space to run trainings and do all that. But I don't think we will actually do the setup ourselves. It has to, you need the local ownership and the local drive for it to grow. Yeah, and then to continue supporting it after you guys have come back. Yeah, exactly. And the same, that's the same thing that we're trying to do with the universities. Like just pushing them to set up those hubs and get their students to be a bit more active and uh, support them in any place that we can, especially when it comes to skills that they don't have easy access to. We're willing to do that uh, for free. Uh, we're also trying with the current way the the government is set up. We actually have like forty-seven mini governments apart from the central government. Uh, <laughs> Quite a number of them are actually trying to do the same. Okay, of course, it's a bit difficult working with them. Uh, the way they understand things is very, very different from the way we do things. But we're really, really pushing them to, yeah, at least in each of those 47 counties, can they have at least a space that techies, not even just techies, entrepreneurs can meet and just get things going. 
I think that's the way it normally starts before it gains that momentum and becomes something big. And and are you finding there's a lot of ground level support for that kind of work? Uh it it okay, the probably the big challenge is that it's still driven by individuals. So legislatively there's no requirement for the same or there's no framework for the same. So it depends entirely on the person that you're talking to and their level of interest in that particular thing. So it varies from one place to the other place. Yeah, but our president has really, really been outspoken in terms of uh, uh, getting younger people into entrepreneurship. Uh, they've been trying quite a number of things, which I don't think any has worked so far. But at least if that will is, is there, it actually makes it a bit easier to push people to go in that direction. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you. So just looking at your at your blog here, you've got some really interesting articles okay. um, that I see you've posted in the last last little while. One of them that I think grabbed all of us was that uh, article about is being good at code or design enough? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, that, that got quite a number of people interested. Uh, so in as much as we have really, really good guys in our space, like think of coders, and think of designers, we still have a bigger portion that is not very good. Like they, they can pass, but now if, for example, uh, a company in Europe was looking to get some work outsourced to Nairobi, uh, the number of people that they can comfortably work with is still not big enough. So, uh, so over time, we've been asking ourselves, how can we get like uh, more coders to just be at par with what the rest of the world is doing. And it's not just us doing that. Uh, there's a company called Andela. It actually started out in Nigeria. And the concept was uh, they get, uh, they recruit a number of coders and uh, designers. Then they take them through a four-year course and teach them to be like the best in the world. Then now they can work with Fortune 500 companies and the likes. So uh, a lot of that has been going on. And because of the fact that we play a big role in the tech ecosystem in Kenya, we saw the opportunity to actually accelerate that process uh, by just having programs. So uh, basically from the position that we're in, in the sense we are a nexus point when it comes to the tech ecosystem in Kenya. Uh, quite a number of guys work from our space, attend the events that we run, and uh, we saw the gap in terms of their skills and their ability to actually understand why they need to get better. So uh, we've been running, uh, one of the first trainings that we're running is called the Craftsmanship Series. Uh, so it's a, it's a course broken down into five, uh, four-hour sessions where we get to talk about different things. So think of something like how code design. Uh, simple things like uh, workflow and how to set up your environment using tools that uh, make it easier for you to work with teams and even looking further at the soft skill aspect to it and the project management aspect to it. And uh, the, the bigger picture is that we want to create a critical mass of really good coders who we can then connect to uh, markets like the European market and in the American market, because if you look at them, their standard of development is really high. And if you really can't work the way they want you to work and the way they're used to working, you really cannot work with them. 
And there are quite a number of other companies locally are trying to do the same thing. So I'd probably say there's a rush for developers in Kenya. Uh, because if you look at the European market, for example, they, they're actually facing a shortage and they need to like uh, figure out a way to work with, for example, Africa to get more people to to, uh, to do work for them. But now you also need to bridge that skill gap and that's what we really seek to do and just to get more people to get to that point where they can easily work with the rest of the world. So are you finding your guys who are upskilled or who you would regard as um, able to work with the guys from the US at that or rather at that higher level. Um, are they mentoring people to get up to that level? How apart from your apart from your sessions that you're that you're running um, your training okay. sessions, have you got kind of one on one mentorship? How, how so what other channels are you using to kind of skill people up? Okay, so uh, the as I had mentioned earlier, we run a consulting arm. That's actually what I'm in charge of at this point in time. And the concept was what I actually talked about. So uh, two years ago, we recruited what I would say the best crop of freelancers in Nairobi. And we've been working with them for the last, uh, for the last two years. Uh, with them, of course, we also noticed like uh, the gaps that they had. And uh, it was a bit easier to train them because it's a smaller group. It's actually a, a group of 20, 20 people. And we are ab- able to fill in the, like, the missing gaps and that kind of thing. But at the same time from that, we were able to start like working on some sort of curriculum, uh, which we can now use to like get more people to learn. But at the same time, one of the biggest challenges that you face in such an endeavor is uh, why? Why do I need to do that? If I'm making money as the way I'm doing things, why should I like do more work for the same amount of money? So we quickly realized that we needed to look at uh, other opportunities that many people can't access because probably the way they work and uh, or their networks that they have. And we quickly realized that uh, the European market was one of the biggest uh, places that many of our coders could not access. So basically, we are dangling a carrot. Uh, join our training will really teach you a lot but at the same time it doesn't mean you're just training for the sake of training you will actually be connected to opportunities so far we're doing uh, we'll be doing our i would say the the pilot next year uh, where we will have now a, uh, the proper cali- uh, curriculum in place and just select like uh, a group of around uh, 8 to 100 guys and take them through that and at the same time connect them to actual work. Yeah, so it's still, I would say it's still in the formative stage. We haven't really figured out how we can quickly scale it, but we're also looking at partnerships that can help us do that. Yeah, so to answer your question, uh, for the for the consulting, uh, like the, the initiative that uh, I'm currently heading, yeah, it's a bit easier to do that uh, direct mentorship. Uh, because within the team, you will have people with different skills, uh, people with different experiences. So it's a bit easy to get to pair people so that they can grow each other. Uh, but now when it comes to the general, like the bigger, the bigger picture and the bigger ecosystem, uh, we working out on a way to scale our projects and at the same time match skills with projects that they can do and get them to grow a bit faster.
Okay, so I've just made a note that we definitely have to get you back in a few months' time to to let us know how that's going. Uh, we'll probably we're still working out uh, uh, a number of partnerships, especially with organisations in uh, Europe that will pro, uh, that will be in charge of like uh, business development, identifying different companies that need that skill, and on our side, identifying developers that can actually match that and do that work. So in the next two or three months, we'll uh, do a formal launch. And yeah, I think that would be, after that, it would be a good time to talk about it again, just to share the lessons learned from the same. Okay, definitely. I've got you on the, on the calendar for that one. Okay. Uh, what efforts are, are in the South African tech ecosystem? Is anyone doing something similar to that? How big is the like uh, freelancing ecosystem and the... Uh, uh, like guys doing work outside the country, just like think of uh, people who are on Elans and Odest and the likes. How big is that space? It's very difficult. You know, for for years now, I've been trying to find out how. Like, first of all, how many developers are there in South Africa? Um, and it's a very hard number to to pin down. It's anywhere from thirty thousand to a hundred thousand. Um, I don't know. <laughs> That's you know. a huge violence. Yeah, exactly. And and those numbers are super unreliable. You know, they there's some sort of like statistical derivation from some strange survey. No one's actually sat down and done that kind of work. Um but we yeah, and the, there's also the question of what actually constitutes a developer when you're looking at those numbers. Is it someone who just uh wrote a few lines of Python in their you know just in passing, or is it someone who's actually employed to do that as a profession? We don't have those stats, or well, that I know of, at least. Yeah, that's oh, what I, was, I was very um, interested in. But, your... but, but, but I think I think okay. let's just go towards the question of what are we doing to uh, in in the South African space. Um, I think we can address the freelancing question in a, in a moment, but just in terms of skills development, the, we've got certain organisations that are involved in. Uh, trying to develop the skills. I, I know uh, Joshua is quite involved with the Joburg Center of Soft, for Software Engineering. Um, but, but in terms of actual organizations, I'm not really too, too aware of that. Uh, we've got a lot of user groups which are very similar to the groups that you've described uh, the, that are language-specific. We've also got a kind of language-agnostic group that meets uh, the, the developer user group here in Joburg. Um, there's Rethink Code. Yeah, I was just going to say, we, we interviewed a bunch of guys from uh, a, a company called We Think Code. Uh, Kennedy, I don't know if you're aware of that, that model that's coming out of France. Where I mean, That's, that's School 42, decentralized learning model. Yeah, but I mean, they, they're looking at sort of 2,000 people a year or something, if I remember correctly. Oh, that's 2,000 is actually an impressive number. But I think it also depends a lot on like uh, the skill level that you are getting people to because I think it's the same problem that you are facing here in Kenya. Like if you are to do a quick poll on the number of coders, you would actually get many people who can like who say they can code. But if you were to dig deeper mm. and try to identify like uh, the people that you can actually work with, that's that's when it gets hard. And I'm actually talking about that from experience like uh when we actually thought of uh, like setting up a consulting arm on paper it actually it, it looked really really simple like 
yeah, you know there are many people who can code. You just need to get them to work with you and then get them to like, you offer them more money compared to what they normally do. Mm. Uh, we quickly realized that, yeah, many people claim that they can do something. Yes. But the real sense when push comes to show, that's when they disappoint you. And we actually had quite a number of bad experiences uh, until we had to like tighten the recruitment proce- procedure and just get people can manage people better to deliver on different things. Yeah, so I think it's, it's something that it's not unique to South Africa. It's, it's an issue in our space, I would say. Yeah, the there, there, there's definitely a shortage of skills. I would highly recommend you have a look at the We Think Code guys. One of the ways that they uh, do the entrance exam is it's they get people to play a game. And anybody oh. who can can solve the puzzles in the game, and the and the puzzles are coding related logic puzzles, uh, gets through to the next level, so to speak, of of the process. Okay, I'll I'll definitely check out. And even uh, the main reason I was actually asking that is if you look at most of the, I'll actually look for the paper that the European Union did on the projections for like. Uh, tech-related jobs in the next uh, 10 to 15 years. Right. And it's, it's becoming clear that uh, as Africans, that's a clear opportunity for us. We Most of the countries that we work with, so think of South Africa, uh, think of Kenya, think of Uganda, think of Nigeria. We, our cultural differences are not too big. We speak the same language. So it's a bit easier to organize freelancers from those markets and uh, make it easy for them to know, like, uh, do more for the market because on their side they are running out of capacity. On our side we have uh, capacity but it's not at the skill that we want it to be. Uh, so how can we get the people that we have to be better skilled to take, uh, to take these opportunities? That's, yeah. that's absolutely on the money. I think that is such a vital question for the future. Okay, Kennedy, well, thank you so much for your time and for all this like super interesting stuff. My head's actually buzzing on this side with all the, the like ideas and, you know, sort of opportunities, I guess, that you're, you've opened up and, and got us back to thinking about. Uh, and it's so great to hear about the, the kinds of things that's happening here in Africa. Yeah, yeah, it is. We just need to accelerate it a bit more. And, uh, and thank you. Thank you for inviting me for this chat. I was actually meant to be in Cape Town uh, yesterday, but I decided to let a colleague come down there. We, we, one of our projects is with an organization there. So there's definitely an opportunity for different uh, organizations and uh, individuals in our space in the continent to work together to do more. Okay, fantastic. Um, so we usually uh, wrap up the episode with uh, a couple of links and mentions for anything that, that people think the audience might be interested in. So, um, Kevin, I'm going to ask you to go first. Okay, so I'm going to pick the Go programming language. Uh, I've been doing quite a bit of that in the last few days, especially just ran into some performance problems with Ruby and needed to be able to do some parallel processing and Go was the first tool that I really reached for, and it just really worked. So yeah, the Go programming language, golang.org. Awesome. Uh, what what are the performance improvements you were saying you got? Just roughly. Ah, uh, uh, okay. It's not a fair comparison because on I was working with some Ruby that was 
using Active Record, and that was just running to ridiculous amounts of memory. Um, but from uh, something that was taking a couple of minutes to run in Ruby, I'm down to a couple, literally two seconds. Wow. Go. But it, it, it's, it's not a one-to-one -one comparison of algorithm. No, no, sure. But just roughly, I mean, that's uh, an amazing, but, but, it's amazing speed up. Yeah. And, and it's primarily as a result of, um, in the first place, being able to control, you know, what's going on to the heap, what's happening in stack memory. And secondly, parallelism, actually primarily parallelism. Okay. Fantastic. Cool. Yeah, so it, it's been really, it's been a really pleasant experience getting into Go. Um, and getting rid of classes actually quite liberating. <laughs> well, there's definitely a course in that somewhere. Cool, Kenneth. How's how's things? What what have you got for us? I just have one this week. Uh, Sentry for exception handling, error reporting. Uh, if you're not using, well, use any kind of error uh, error reporting in your systems. It's definitely a lifesaver. Um, and if you need to use something on-prem, if you don't feel comfortable with having your stuff in the cloud uh, or you just have excess service you want to waste, Sentry has a open-source on-prem version. It's really, really good. That's my side. Okay, fantastic. Kennedy, would you like to uh, shout out to anybody or put any links into to folks who listen to the podcast? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, one of the biggest problems that... Uh, uh, as developers have is documentation and uh, there's a pretty good tool that we use it's a paid service right. and uh, it's really really good for uh, structuring your api documentation and making it easy for people to make sense of it and actually use it uh, it's called readme.io okay fantastic readme.io cool. yeah it's definitely worth checking it out okay anything else and not for the moment, but if you want to learn a bit more about uh, what organizations can actually achieve by really, really training code as well, go to andela.com and you will see the work that they have done with Fortune 5 companies, the people that they actually taken from, uh, I'd say, just average developers to world-class developers. <laughs> Okay, fantastic. Um, then from my side, uh, there's a new book out called The Explorer's Guild, um, and it looks super, super interesting, uh, sort of a mix between a graphic novel and an adventure story um, by Kevin Costner and a guy called John Baird. I'll put the link in the show notes. All right. Well, thank you so much, everybody, and uh, I look forward to chatting again. Okay. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.